you don't need a lot of money to do more with it. Join Padma Lakshmi, Viola Davis, and Fidelity's Women Talk Money team during our free Women's History Month series as we get real about ways you can start planning and saving for the future you want so you can feel good about your money every step of the way. Save your seat today at fidelity.com slash WHM. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE, SIPC. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Hey friends, and welcome to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivey podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm so glad you're here. Each week on this show, I invite a friend to join me, and we chat about the big things in life, the little things in life, and everything in between. Hey friends, welcome to the second episode of the Happy Hour of 2024. It's January 10th. Listen, over the holidays, I saw my friend Emily P. Frankman put something on Instagram and it said, January is the new week between Christmas and New Year. And what she means is take the month of January, chill. If you're a goal person, maybe take the month of January to figure it out. And that gave me so much rest and peace when I read that. I'm not a massive goal person. I've never made a word of the year. Last January, I did dry January and Whole30. I didn't make the decision to do that this year. But all that to say, I'm not massively into like this massive goal list, but, 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 but I did read Emily's comment or her little post on Instagram and think to myself, I want to take the month of January and kind of figure out what do I want for 2024? What do I want it to look like? What do I want it to feel like? And then in turn, what do I need to do to get there? So if that helps you at all, I hope that it does. Um, I'm taking this month to kind of figure that out as well. And maybe we can talk about it in February, what that looks like. But Anyhow, happy second happy hour of January. Today we have a phenomenal show. John Mark Comer is back on the podcast. And John Mark has been on before. He's been on one of my favorite guests that I've had on the happy hour uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, John Mark just oozes love for Jesus. And I just really enjoy being around people like that. Um, he's wicked smart. When you read his books, there's so many uh, references to other books. He's just very well read. And so I like that. And he's a great interviewer. And he has a new book coming out next week. It's called Practicing the Way. Be with Jesus, become like him, do as he did. And John Mark also wrote the book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, which I highly recommend everyone read. I read it a couple summers ago. And in fact, I said I was going to read it every year. And I have not read it every year since then. But I should read it again because it's so very, very good. You will thoroughly enjoy our conversation today. I can guarantee it. Money back guarantee, guys. You're going to love this conversation. Um, okay, let's talk about 2024 real quick. I just want to spend a moment with you since I have you here. I just want to tell you, first of all, I am so grateful that you listened to the happy hour. And I don't say that jokingly. I don't say that uh, like, oh, I'm glad you're here. I literally am really, really happy that you're here. There are millions of podcasts that you could listen to. And the fact that you're here today just really warms my heart. And I was thinking about you guys, you listeners. I literally was thinking about you guys as I was on a walk over the week between Christmas and New Year, where I actually walked every single day. I was so proud of myself. But I was on a walk because I love walking in my neighborhood. And I was thinking about you guys. And I was like, man, I really want to spend the month of January figuring out how do I just really make this show something that you look forward to, that that helps you grow in your faith that you want to learn from. And so you're on my mind. And I want to say thank you for being here. I also want to say that I have a book coming out in a couple of weeks. And I don't know that I've said this publicly yet, but I've had this feeling inside of me that this will be my best book yet. And again, I don't say that in like, it'll sell the most because I don't, that's not even what I mean. What I mean by that is I think this book has the most help for the reader in it that I've ever done. My first book, If You Only Knew, was pretty memoir-esque, which is kind of weird to say I'm not that old. Um, and then I wrote a book called UBU, which has phenomenal information in it. I really, really love that book. And it was really important for me at that time. And I think it is such a great book for helping you find out, hey, 
I really personally think that we should try to be the people that God made us to be. And so don't try to look around and compare and be what everyone else says that you should be. But then there's this book. It's called Why Can't I Get It Together? Kick Unrealistic Expectations to the Curb and Rest in God's Truth. And this book was born out of a frustration of myself of wondering, will I always struggle with this? Will I always have a hard time getting it together? And the truth of the fact is I wrote this book and I believe in every word and I put into practice the things that are in this book. And I'm still asking myself that sometimes, will I ever get it together? And the truth is I really, really, really believe that it takes intentionality to look at your current reality and see what does my reality need from me? What do I need from God right now in this reality? Because as I've learned over the last couple of years is that life is so difficult and life is difficult in different ways for lots of people. The things I'm struggling with, you might not be struggling with. And so I think it takes personal intentionality to look and say, what does my current reality need right now? Where do I need to make adjustments? And then where do I need to run to God with these? And so this book, Why Can't I Get It Together? It comes out February 13th. um, But as usual, I would love it if you pre-order it. If you even think you're going to get this book, I would love it if you would go pre-order it. If you go to jamieivy.com slash read, all the information is there and you can pre-order the book. Okay, last thing I want to tell you, and then I'm going to get to the John Mark Comer interview because it is so, so good. You don't want to miss it. The next thing I want to tell you is that John Mark Comer was a part of our December book club. Well, where our book club is going on right now, and we're changing it up. I want to make it better. I want to make it a community-driven book club. And so come check us out. Go to jamieivy.com slash book club. And to find out information about our book club, we'd love to have you join us. We're reading a great book right now called The Other Year. Um, Come check it out. I'd be really happy to have you over there. It's a fun group. All right, you guys, I have talked for long enough. Here is John Mark Comer. John Mark, welcome to the happy hour. Hi, Jamie. Great to be with you and yours. I am so glad you're here. Now, what everyone needs to know when they're listening in January is that, just full disclosure, we're recording this in December, and John Mark's newest book was a part of our book club. And so we actually have our book club friends listening and joining us, uh, and then we're going to let everyone hear this in January. And so it's kind of like you're going to be with me twice, which is the weird thing about technology. You're with me in December, and then you're with me in January. So I love it. And not with you at all, because we're on the other <laughs> side of the country <laughs> and the internet. Isn't the that bond between us. the life? Okay, speaking of, where do you live these days? Because I think that since last time I spoke with you, you might have moved. Yes, we just uh, at the end of the summer, so about four or five months ago, moved after 20 years in Portland, Oregon to Topanga Canyon, Los Angeles. Topanga? I've never heard of that place. Yes, it is a magical part of the world. It's hard to describe if you have not been here before. It's in LA. Okay. Um, but it's up in the Santa Monica Mountains. So I live up 1,500 feet, no cell reception, propane, septic. There's a barn on our property, bobcats, mountain lions, rattlesnakes, coyotes, all the things, oak trees. And yet I'm in L.A. My neighbors are all very L.A. kind of people. It is a magical, beautiful part of the world. It sounds like that you went to California, you went to L.A., and then you found this curtain and you opened it up. And behind it was a secret spot that nobody knew about. It sounds lovely. Yes, it is. I, You know, I have such a I, I think I'm a contemplative at heart. I would love to just be independently wealthy and just disappear, get rid of my phone, everything, and just go live on a hundred acres up in the mountains somewhere and just read books and pray and watch the sunset and cook dinner for my family. But I feel a call to help articulate discipleship to Jesus in a post-Christian context. And that means I need to be proximate, or it's very helpful to be proximate to the nerve centers of secularism. You know, Portland was one, LA is mm-hmm. certainly another. And so living in proximity to the level of godlessness, secularism, chaos, confusion, beauty, art, all of that of a major global city, the diversity of a global city is very helpful. But this is feels like a kindness of God because then I get to sneak home and sit under the oak tree and listen to the crickets every night. So it's that's why special. I'm saying it does sound. And I don't know you that well, but I'm guessing you're also not independently wealthy either. So there's that factor as well. You can't just no. run off. No, so buy my book. Help me, help me, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> help me disappear from the world. <laughs> I'll live simply. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, I want to go back to something that you just said, and I'm going to ask you to rephrase something you just said. You said, 
I need to be close in proximity. And I'm in a post-Christian world. Can you kind of go back to what you said about where you live and why you live there and why you can't run away and just live under a tree and read books all day? Tell me the people you want to be proximate to. I'm sorry, I'm putting you on the spot here about what you said a minute and a half ago. Yeah, I mean, I I don't want to say too much. I mean, just, you know, we're living in a fascinating time in human history. Mm -hmm. In some ways, there's nothing new under the sun. And lots of what we're living through at political level, it's like it's all we've been here before. But one area that is really new is secularism, is there's, there's not really any historical antecedent of a society that has attempted to live as if there is no God and no trans- higher order or transcendent source of morality, right, wrong. And so this secular, postmodern, progressive kind of air that is dominant in the mm-hmm. West and certainly in a place like L.A. is... Um, it's a fascinating new move moment in history. It is corrosive soil, I think, for just human flourishing in general and discipleship to Jesus in particular. And it's where much of the country is or is going. And much of the the kind of bastions of more Christianized culture are in less secular parts of the country. And that's not a critique. And as a dad, I, many times I want to move there. But, you know, most of like evangelicalism is still very dominated by Southern culture. And that's Mm -hmm. not bad. It can be beautiful. But most millennials and Gen Z are their cultural imagination is dominated by the coast, by New York City, by L.A., by San Francisco, by tech, by Portland, Oregon. So it's just very helpful to be here, even though in many ways it's a less Christ-like place Mm. and more corrosive to discipleship. Because it just puts me like, you know, right at the pain point. And that's, you know, N.T. Wright has that great line about how the vocation of Christians is to be at the place where the world is in pain. Mm. And, you know, cities are a great example of the secular life script is failing. And, you know, name your malaise from income inequality and houselessness to drug abuse to loneliness, divorce, mental illness, anxiety. I mean, name your thing. Um, and so it's really helpful for me to be here in the concentrated form of secularism and attempt to articulate what it looks like, what it feels like, and how to find a way forward as a disciple of Jesus through it in a way that hopefully is helpful to people in other cities, but also in less concentrated forms. Because it used to be, this is the the hard truth a lot of people are problem solving for. It used to be that to get exposed to secularism at this level beyond a book or a, you had to actually go live in mm-hmm. Manhattan or Paris mm-hmm. or London or LA. Now all you have to do is like have an iPhone mm-hmm. and uh, or a Netflix sub- subscription and you are now immersed in this world. And uh, so it's it's very helpful. We have to work out what does discipleship to Jesus, what you know, it's the Bonhoeffer story. This must be stronger than that. If you're familiar with that story, we have to work out a more robust discipleship model that works here. You know, it's interesting that you talk about evangelicalism and Southern culture. And I live in Austin, Texas, and have grown up in what I would consider parts of the Bible Belt my whole entire life. When I didn't live here, I lived in Houston or I but lived to in quote Nashville. My other Texan friends, Austin is not Texas. Thank you. I love Austin. It's my favorite (laughs) part of Texas. It's the best city. Please come visit us. I'm really in Texas. I am. I'm coming in January, actually. Well, we should get together. Um, A lot of your California friends are coming to Austin. It's great. Uh, But it got me thinking when you said that is, I think there is, I'm totally just like, I'm not as deep a thinker as you, John Mark. And it's one of the reasons I love reading you and following you because you help me think deeply. But as you said that, I thought, I was like, it feels like sometimes... Southern culture, and I'm going to use this the cult the on a map. You throw in evangelicalism on that southern map, and it feels like a little bit of a generation, maybe yours and mine, and a little bit above us, are a little behind in things. And so then you're you say in your book, which I literally had to read three times because I thought surely this is a typo. When you said every year more than a million millennials walk away from the faith, I literally read it and I was like, surely that can't be right a million millennials walk away from the faith. And it made me think about just in, you talk about how living in LA and about how you're in the in the kind of pen point of secularism right there, which would be a little bit different than other parts of the country. 
But you have a phone, you have iPhone, you have YouTube, you have all the things. It's everywhere. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter. Which yeah, got especially me if thinking, you're younger, especially yes. if you're at a high school right now or on oh a my gosh. campus. Totally. Which got me thinking, I think a lot of my generation and above, we have to realize that. We have to realize what's happening. But I want to talk about this. This is uh, your new book, Practicing the Way. Be with Jesus. Become like him. Do as he did. Um, it feels like you just kind of introed this. It feels like very, very... Um, like urgent need for the time. And John Mark, I have found myself thinking a lot over the last couple of years. What do we need to do to be a follower of Jesus? Because like you said, like I told you, I grew up in the South. I grew up in a Christian home my whole life. And I read scripture. And more importantly, over the last couple of years, I've heard stories from people who live in different parts of the world and them following Jesus and me following Jesus has looked drastically different. And it's been convicting. It's been encouraging. You know, it's been really like spurred me on a lot and a lot of things about my life. But I want to ask you, you talk in this book about what it means to become an, a, like not just a disciple of Jesus, but you talk about an apprentice of Jesus. And so let's start there. Tell me the difference because I've never, like you said, I've never heard someone say, hey, let's come to our apprentice class. You know, it's our discipleship class. Mm -hmm. And so what is the difference and why do you use apprentice? Yeah, well, I would not say there's a difference between a disciple and apprentice. I just think apprentice is a better English translation. The way we use it, the word. Yeah. So, you know, the Hebrew word was talmudim. The Greek word is mathetes that is normally translated disciple if you have an English version of the Bible. And that's fine. That is a valid translation. The problem is people don't really use that word much outside of the church. And so it's easy to kind of import meanings into it that aren't there in Jesus' first century Jewish world. And um, so the word mathetes in Greek, it literally means a learner or a student but their model of education was nothing like our modern Western model of education, where you go to university and you sign up for a class and you go Monday, Wednesday, Friday for 50 minutes and you listen to a lecture and take notes and there's a test at the end or you get a grade. It was nothing like that. It was more like, in a not more like, it was an apprenticeship program, a bit more like if you were in an apprenticeship program for a trade today to become a plumber or an electrician. Or, uh, you know, we don't call them that as much, but an apprenticeship program, like me medical residency, mm -hmm. if you're becoming a surgeon, it's not just head knowledge. You're not just reading about this in books. You do a bunch of that, but then you're in a room with a master surgeon and a scalpel. He's coaching you or she's coaching you through each move, you know, so there, or maybe an apprentice to an artist or a designer or a musician. So it was that model of kind of holistic, relational, whole life learning. That was the model of education. So a number of Greek scholars argue that the English word apprentice does a better job of capturing the full meaning of the word mathetes and really what Jesus means by come and be my disciple or come mm -hmm. and be my apprentice. So the distinction I make in the book that is a little bit provocative, I mean, mostly I'm just messing with you but is between a Christian and a disciple or an apprentice. Very provocative, John Mark. And so <laughs> Yes, they made but they made me they made me take a line out of the book. There was a line in there that said, What if Jesus wasn't a Christian? And they they made me take that out. I don't know who they is. They are very nice. Well, but you know they what? Said, hey, they are not on the happy out. hour. So here we are. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, in the New Testament most people listening would already know this. The word Christian is only used three times, whereas the word disciple or apprentice is used 268 times. The word Christian, used only three times, is an insult in the New Testament. It's a word used by pagans. It was basically a religious slur used against followers of Jesus. It kind of means little Christ or wannabe, you know, Messiah. And so it was a it was a, a derogatory slur. It was a, a comment of scorn mm -hmm. that later, after the New Testament or toward the end of it, followers of Jesus began to pick up and say, "Yes, we we, we will self-identify as Christians, as little Christ, as wannabe Jesuses," and it you know kind of entered the lexicon over the centuries. But the prime the word used by followers of Jesus in the New Testament was. Either there's two dominant words. It's either Adelphoi, which is translated brothers and sisters, so we're family, 
or this word mathetes, who are apprentices, who are apprenticing under Jesus of Nazareth in this community or family we call the community of Jesus or the church. And so um, I draw this distinction where today the word Christian is used all the time, unlike in the New Testament. And all that, that word means different things to different people in different parts of the country. But what most people mean by that is just somebody who ascribes to kind of the, in a mind, at a mind level, not a practice level or body level, just in their mind, ascribes to the bare bones of a religion called Christianity, not language used by any of the New Testament writers and certainly not by Jesus. And, you know, has a rough, basic kind of sort of Judeo-Christian moral worldview and, you know, may or may not attend church on a semi-regular basis or annual basis or whatever. That's all the word means. It does not mean necessarily one whose whole life is organized around the driving kind of through line of apprenticeship to Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so I talk about Catholics, how our Catholics brothers and sisters distinguish between Catholics and practicing Catholics. I love this language. It's so mm -hmm. punk rock that they do that. So you can be Catholic and mean, it can mean almost that he's a good Catholic boy. She's a good Catholic girl. It may mean just that you grew up in Boston or you're mm -hmm. from Italy or that's it. You're Italian. Um, whereas a practicing Catholic, that's, that's not about your ethnicity or your cultural or your family background. That's about your measure of devotion. Mm -hmm. You yep. may be spiritually mature, you may be brand new, but if you're a practicing Catholic, you're at daily mass, you're doing prayer on a daily yep. basis. So I think the time has come for those of us on the Protestant side of the Church of Jesus to distinguish at least a little bit between Christians and practicing Christians or apprentices of Jesus. And my heart here is not, um, I need to clarify my heart, it's not to shame anyone who's like, oh, I'm not really a true follower of Jesus. I'm a lazy Christian or whatever. It's not to shame. That's not Shame is not a helpful motivator, not long-term, not for long-term change. It's, you know, to try to play with, in the Gospels, the word Christian is not used at all in the four Gospels, but all four writers of the Gospels have this literary device where they group people into these two categories of the disciples of Jesus, which is more than just the 12. People get confused and think the apostles, Jesus had more than 12 disciples. He had 12 apostles and then many more disciples, including women, which was unheard of for a rabbi to have a female disciple, like Mary and Martha and others. And then there's the crowds. And the nature of the crowds is ambiguous. Some of the crowds love Jesus and are just learning about him. Others are Pharisees who are literally plotting to murder him. And everything in between is little kids there that just like are giving Jesus lunch. You know what I mean? Like they're all over the map, but they're in this kind of ambiguous, they're not followers of Jesus. They're not apprenticing under Jesus. They're just kind of listening to him and interested in him or hostile toward him. And the very fact that all four gospel writers, and especially like Mark, wants to like drive this wedge, they will often, Jesus does this a lot, where he intentionally uses black and white, either or binary language, not because he's not a sophisticated thinker, but to kind of get us out of our little moral ambiguity and make us kind of pick a side. Whoever's not for me is against me. So the literary device of crowd or disciple, it, it's designed, I think, for you and I, the reader, as we're reading through the Gospels and reading the stories about people's interactions with Jesus, to kind of ask ourselves like a probing and a bit provocative question, am I mm. an apprentice of Jesus or am I just in the crowd? And mm -hmm. you may love Jesus and like him and be interested in him and come regularly to listen to him. But are you just a face in the crowd or are, are you apprenticing under him in the whole mm. of your life? Mm. You know. I, that's what I've been thinking about when I say I've been thinking about this a lot is sometimes I feel like it's very easy to be quote unquote Christian in America. And by your definition of what does it mean to be a Christian, I think that by the same way that Catholics would say I'm a practicing Catholic or not, or I'm a practicing Muslim or not, the same way, like you're saying, like it can feel very easy to just feel like I'm a Christian. I appreciated John Mark when you were talking about apprentices and Jesus being a rabbi. Um one of the things that my listeners probably know, I'm back in school at seminary. And one of the things yes. I'm like dying to just like really, really learn is like, I've been reading the Bible since I was young and I've been a Christian since I was 21. But I think I just don't understand a lot of things that I just don't understand. And one of the things that you talked about in here is what it would mean for a rabbi to call apprentices to follow them and yes. who got called and how they got called and what that meant. 
And when I read this, I'm getting chills again because I think about when he called his disciples, when he called Peter and what that would, because I've always thought like, I guess Peter just saw Jesus and he, he healed somebody. And so he's like, sure, I'll follow him. But it's so much more than that. And it made me, it made me emotional to feel like Jesus would call, he just would call me like, just like, don't deserve this. And he would call me. Can you tell us, give us the little lesson that I love so much in your book about why it is so cool that Jesus called Peter to be his and all of his disciples, but why was it cool that he called him to be his apprentice? Okay. You just officially asked me to nerd out on people. Okay. Well, I love it. Let's go. All right. It was one of my favorite parts I read. You signed up for this. All right. (laughs) If you don't know it, guys, I'm a Texas girl through and through. I've lived here most of my life. I was born here and I love traveling. Here's why I love traveling throughout Texas, because it has a vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activities, which means there's an infinite number of different travel experiences. And no two travelers are exactly alike. And it means that no two trips should be either. If you're a beach person, well, you can have fun under the sun with Texas's 350 miles of coastline. If you're more of a rugged vacation type, there are campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. And foodies cannot get enough of Texas's world famous barbecue and Tex-Mex. Enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. And now, Travel Texas offers a -a one-of-a-kind online trip builder that allows users to generate a custom, visually-led trip matched to their unique interest. Guys, come visit my state. Visit TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn. You don't need a lot of money to do more with it. Join Padma Lakshmi, Viola Davis, and Fidelity's Women Talk Money team during our free Women's History Month series as we get real about ways you can start planning and saving for the future you want so you can feel good about your money every step of the way. Save your seat today at fidelity.com slash WHM. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE, SIPC. Yeah, I mean, that's what I love, you know, the danger of familiarity. You can read stories. And I opened the book with the one that you just said, where, you know, Simon and Andrew are fishing. Jesus walking along the beach says, come follow me. And it says they dropped their nets. And that doesn't mean they just left their boat. They literally walked out of their business they own and ran. They just walked out the door, proverbially, and started to follow Jesus full time. I'm like, what would possess somebody? No planning. No, like, okay, great. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sell my business. I'll be back in a year, you know? And you have those stories too. And Jesus is like, hey, let the dead bury their own dead. But they just walked out of everything. And then there's other passages that we just blow right past and don't realize how stunning they are, such as the invitation of Jesus in all the, in most of the gospels. If anyone would become my disciple, we miss the whole point. So here's the basic point. In discipleship, uh, we often talk about discipleship, or I would prefer the language of apprenticeship torn out of its first century context. So discipleship was a part of Jesus' world. Jesus did not invent discipleship. He was not the first rabbi to have disciples. And you see that in the New Testament itself. John the Baptist, who comes before Jesus, also had disciples. The Pharisees had disciples. We read about disciples of Hillel and Shammai. Paul the Apostle was previously a disciple of Gamaliel, another famous rabbi, before he became a disciple of Jesus. So discipleship was already woven into the fabric of Jesus' first century world. And it was an official part of their educational system. And it was the highest echelon. So there were three kind of, it wasn't as formal as our system is today, but there were three basic stages to Jewish education. The first was kind of where you would go, Beit Sefer it was called, which means house of the book. It was basically like our version of elementary school. And you would be there until you're about 12 or 13 years old. It was all about memorization of the Torah, You'd go to your local synagogue or somewhere in the village and you'd study. And then at that point, around 12 or 13, again, very different from our world, the vast majority of young Hebrew boys and girls would go home to apprentice in the family business or work on the family farm. And not that many years later would, you know, get hitched and start making babies and do the thing. And in fact, there was a famous saying, go home, play it when 
kids would leave school, go home, ply your trade, and pray that they become rabbis. And the but, the best of the best would go on to a second level of education called Beit Midrash, or the House of Learning, that was sadly for boys only. And that was for about ages 13 or so, and they'd finish up around 16, 17, 18, where you would continue your studies in the Torah, your memorization of the scripture of the day. And then at that point, 17-ish, 18 years or so old, the vast majority were done and would go back home, again, make babies and pray that they become rabbis. But the best of the best of the best would go on to apprentice under a rabbi. But this is really hard to get into. It's equivalent to kind of like getting into a PhD program at Harvard or a postdoctorate fellowship at Columbia. I mean, this was for the upper echelons. You likely needed to be affluent or have like extraordinary kind of meritocracy chops to get in. But, and you would apply to apprentice under a rabbi. He would never invite you because Mm. he would never risk rejection. You would find a rabbi who's teaching you were drawn to. You would go after them and say, would you take me as an apprentice? And if you got in, then you basically, you'd leave behind your family, your village. Rabbis were itinerant. They would travel from village to village teaching and making disciples. And you would follow your rabbi around. You'd leave everything. And you had three basic goals. The first goal was to be with your rabbi. You were with him 24-7. So there's no class that you would go to three days a week for an hour at a time. You would literally follow your rabbi around place to place. You'd sleep next to him, eat next to him, wash next to him, all the things. Your second goal was to become like your rabbi. You wanted to be formed as a person. You wanted to learn not just his theology or his way of reading the scripture. You wanted to actually like learn how to interact with God and the world the way that he does or they do. And then finally, you wanted to do what they did. You wanted to become a rabbi. It was like an apprenticeship program. If you're a plumber, in a four-year apprenticeship program, your goal at the end is not just to like read books on plumbing or fix the occasional leaky faucet. You want to know how to go plumb a house, you know, in the same way you wanted to go become a rabbi. And when the rabbi thought you were ready, he'd say something to you like, go and make disciples, which was his Mm -hmm. kind of commissioning. And that's, um, which is language still used in rabbinic ordination to this day, go and make disciples. So that's what it meant to be a disciple or an apprentice of rabbi of a rabbi. And if you turn that around and flip it kind of from the first century to the 21st century, from Israel to America, all of a sudden, this fuzzy kind of idea of discipleship starts to get a bit clearer. For us to apprentice under Jesus is to order our whole life around these same three goals, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, or what we call, call spiritual formation. And to do as he did, to train under him to one day say and do the kinds of things that Jesus said and did. And the shocking thing about what Jesus did and his invitation to become a disciple is he made it available to everyone. Any of anyone, that would be like, I don't know, some world famous professor saying, hey, if anybody wants a full ride scholarship to Harvard, just DM me. You can come live with me. (laughs) I'll I'll put you out room and board. I'll teach you everything I know. Uh, but you have to like quit your hourly job working at Chick-fil-A mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. And you have to come with me right now. And if you throw your apron on the floor and walk out the door and come with me, full ride scholarship, you'll get your PhD, you'll become, I'll teach you how to do everything I do. Mm-hmm. Anybody in their right mind, for mm-hmm. the most part, if it was a compelling person, would drop yeah. everything. And yeah. that's what Simon and Andrew do. Yeah. Which I just will always read that differently, knowing what it meant to be invited to follow a rabbi and seeing how Jesus um, invited them into that. There's, I, I, I have a million questions written down and we do not have a million hours. Mm-hmm. You guys, this book, Practicing the Way, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. I want to tell you this, John Mark, I told you this before we started, is there's a part in your book, let me get where the title is here on this page that I'm looking at. It's about formation. So this is under goal number two, to become like him. Like you said, you've got three goals here. Uh, goal number one is to be with Jesus. Goal number two, to become like him. And goal number three, to do as he did. Um, and in this, you're talking about formation. And I told you that I had, there's a chart that you have in here. And again, you guys will have to watch the YouTube video to see this, but here's the chart. And if you're listening to the podcast, Go find this on YouTube and you can see it. But it's called The Critical Journey. And actually, this chart came up in my seminary class this semester. So I'm excited to, oh, to talk so to you about it. I'm so happy to hear that. 
Yeah. So this is basically about um, the journey that we take as Christians. So it's the six stage spiritual development theory. I'm going to read these real quick and then I have a question for you. Stage one says recognition of God. Stage two, uh, life of discipleship. Stage three, productive life. Stage four, journey inward. Stage five, journey outward. Stage six, life of love. So my question that I have for you is, there's this section on the stages of faith between stage three and stage four, and it's called the wall. And this is what we talked about in class, actually. And um, the the people that you quote in here from Fuller Seminary, say they say most Christians never mature beyond stage three. Very few reach their full potential in Christ. Um, they list a lot of reasons for this, but I want to ask you, what do you think the reason is for this? Why are people not reaching that full potential that they have in Christ? Yeah, I mean, I think there's more than one reason for that. You know, mm-hmm. every person's spiritual journey is unique. There are systemic issues such as, and the authors of the Critical Journey from Fuller Seminary argue that most churches don't offer discipleship models that go mm-hmm. beyond stage three. So stage one, recognition of God is what we would call evangelism or you know, evangelicals call getting saved. So lots of churches do that pretty well. Stage two is life of discipleship, which means like basic, becoming like a basic Christian, going to Mm -hmm. church, learning the Bible. Churches do that well, basic early stage discipleship. And stage three is the productive life. So a lot of times churches are then like, all right, now become a leader, lead a small group or join our board or lead a missions trip or come on staff or lead a volunteer team. Like we want to get you into leadership. All beautiful. It's all great. And then that's where it ends. Very few churches have an intentional um, mm. model of discipleship that goes beyond leadership development. The assumption is become a leader and you will continue to grow. And um, so that's, there's like systemic issues. Mm-hmm. There's personal issues, you know, the wall, a lot of time you hit this stage and it's not, actually, they don't consider the wall a stage mm-hmm. and they would say it happens to most people multiple times in a life. But um you often have an ex- the wall. What they mean by the wall is kind of what it sounds like an experience mm-hmm. of pain and suffering that there's no way around. As they say in AA, the only way out is through. Mm-hmm. And um, that's that's all you have to go through or you have to turn around. And sadly, a lot of people get stuck at the wall and they don't go through or they go back. So, for example, mm-hmm. the deconstruction phenomenon that has been sweeping my generation for the last few years is complex and emotionally loaded. One of the reasons behind the phenomenon and so many millennials that are leaving the faith is people hit the wall and they abandon the faith. They abandon the spiritual journey with Jesus and they go on a different spiritual journey or a different journey, which is why you will notice many people when they deconstruct their Christian faith, it's like they're getting saved into a new faith or a new religious mm. system. And it might not be Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam. It might be third wave anti-racism or all things LGBTQ or careerism or positive psychology. These are all religious systems. And many of them have really good things to say. Mm. But they are systems of meaning and purpose that tell us what is good, what is evil. How do you become a good person? Where's my community belonging? What's my identity? Do How do I know if I'm out or in or on the right side or the wrong side? These are religious systems. They mm. operate like religious systems. And you will notice most people, when they abandon the Christian faith, adopt another another faith and go back and start at stage one again. It's like they're getting saved and like they've had this awakening. And then they become like the life of discipleship. They're learning. They're reading books. They're yep. listening to podcasts. And then they become a leader. Then they're like advocating and doing things and going for it. and then. If you walk with them long enough, they will hit the wall again. Mm -hmm. And there will be an experience of doubt, disillusionment, questioning, burnout, Mm. uh, disconnect between their own experience and the dogma of their religious system that they've been following. So um, this wall experience is incredibly important. One of the reasons I wrote this book is many people in the modern Western church don't have a a model of discipleship, a life architecture of spiritual formation that is robust enough to carry them through the darkness of the wall and out to the other side. And that's that's what we need. That is what we need. It makes me think, I used to run like marathons 
races, I only ran halves, which is kind of like, I want to say I ran fulls, but I ran halves. Hey, but, you yeah. know what? I only ran halves too, and I still feel embarrassed about it. It's okay. I ran four halves, so I sometimes like to think I ran two full. I just don't go with that sometimes. Uh, but you know what I'm about to say then. There is a point in every race where you do hit the wall. It doesn't matter yeah, how much they training call you've done. The wall. Exactly. It doesn't matter how much training you've done. You hit the wall, and it really, I think what makes a good athlete and I mean, I I like to tell my kids, once an athlete, always an athlete. I'm over here trying to convince myself of that. But yeah. I just think what makes a great athlete is really someone who hits the wall and can continue going. Because I think everyone's going to hit the wall. And it's probably what sets, you know, professional athletes away from people who play flag football on Thanksgiving Day. You know, they hit the wall and they can mm-hmm. keep going. Um, and so I think about that a lot. And I I wonder... I mean, you wrote this whole book around this. And I wonder if there's a little bit in here that has to do with you talk about spiritual formation and you talk about how it is a slow process and it's not a one-time thing. And I wonder sometimes, you can tell me if you think this is true. I wonder if sometimes people hit that wall and they expect kind of to have this quick response, this quick reaction. Like if I'm a Christian, I should be able to get this quickly. And I wonder if some of getting through the wall, because I don't think you can go under it over. I think you've got to walk through it is it just might be slow. Like it just might be a process to get through. Is that what you're thinking? Well, certainly it's a process to get through and you're not in control of how long it takes. That's the big thing. You can certainly slow it down, but prior to the wall, you feel more in control of your spiritual formation and your discipleship to Jesus. It feels more linear. It feels more cause and effect. Like, hey, I read my Bible. I mm-hmm. read this book called Practicing the Way. I do spiritual disciplines. I get into a small group. I go to church. I do whatever. I confess. And then I grow. And once you get into the wall, it doesn't feel like you're growing at all. It feels like you're falling apart, you know, mm-hmm. like you're coming undone. It feels like you're regressing, not progressing, because God is graciously stripping you down mm-hmm. to remake you and to remove, you know, unhealed parts of your soul. Mm-hmm. And, um, but you're not in control. It may last a few weeks. It may last many years. You're not in control of it. And that, you know, we Western people are highly resistant to any context where we're not in control of our autonomy and where we, it requires surrender, patience, mystery, uncertainty. These are not, these are not how we roll, you know, not in the least bit. You know, it's funny because um, control is a big thing for me. And um, I like to feel in control of everything happening in my life. I mean, who doesn't, right? No one's like, oh, I love to be out of control. No, I hate to be out of control. (laughs) And when I think about it in this context, I don't think I've really even put these words to what you're saying until I was reading your book. But it is really, really, really true. And I think when we talk about the American church, especially in the evangelical church, we have this high view of the Bible, rightfully so, right? We have a high view of scripture, rightfully so. We have a high view of of like reading our Bible and being the word. And you talk about discipleship ch- classes in churches and my church and a lot of churches have a lot of great discipleship classes for people. But you talk in here about often Bible study and all of these things does not produce the sm- spiritual maturity that we desire. And I think that can feel frustrating to people, but it can also make you wonder like, am I doing this wrong? Am I doing something wrong? So what is your what is your reasoning first to why you think that? And then what is your encouragement to someone who I do have a high view of Bible study? I am reading my Bible, but it feels maybe it's just what we talked about. It's the wall. It feels out of control. What is your encouragement or even maybe thoughts about that? Yeah, well, I think it's key to realize that scripture is always foundational to a life of discipleship, always woven into the fabric of the life of an apprentice of Jesus. But it plays different roles at different stages in our spiritual journey. So one of the major fatal flaws in the discipleship model of evangelicalism is that evangelicalism, which, listen, has so many great things it's done in the world, Mm -hmm. um, but it came out of the Enlightenment, if you know, kind of Western history, and it adopted a one or two Enlightenment assumptions about the nature of what a human being is that are not biblical (laughs) that are not biblical reality or not even human reality and are now not even considered scientific truth anymore and to cut to the chase evangelicalism was built on the assumption that as a person's knowledge of the bible increases their spiritual maturity will increase along with it Mm 
mm-hmm. which is why there are sermons and Bible teaching and Bible studies and Bible books and Bible classes. And most discipleship classes or courses at a church would be learning scripture and learning Christian doctrine. Very information based. The problem is that information is not the same thing as formation. Mm. Knowing something is not the same thing as wanting to do that something, which is still not the same thing as regularly doing that thing as a natural byproduct of your transformed inner person. So there's enough correlation between um, growth and knowledge of scripture and spiritual growth early in the spiritual journey to keep that illusion or myth alive. Yep. But the farther down the spiritual journey you get, the lower that correlation. So very pragmatically, when I was 21, or let's say you're 21, mm-hmm. and you're a brand new Christian, and you're coming from Austin, or from LA, or from some part of the world where the, the cultural values and the cultural assumptions about what's good and beautiful and true are very different from the teachings of Jesus. So when you open up scripture, you're going to have to study it. This was written 2,000 years ago in another language, another part of the world. You're not going to be able to just get it all by reading it one time through. You're going to need to really study it, put time, sweat, equity into reading scripture and learning the Bible. It's going to rock your world. It's going to transform your mental models of what it means to be male, female, human, what sexuality is, how we relate to money. Uh, what is the good life, the role of healing, the role of community? It's going to challenge so many of the cultural assumptions that you have been living by in your life prior to Jesus. And so early in that journey, learning the Bible, reading the Bible, studying the Bible, learning theology, absolutely crucial. There's a reason that, you know, you talk to so many brand new Christians and they'll just say that they're like, insane pot sermon podcast people mm-hmm. to be like, yeah, I listen to three sermons a day. And like, mm-hmm. I can't even, fa- I can't imagine listening to three sermons right. a month, much less three sermons a day. But I talk to these new Christians and there's some, I think that's them saying yes to the Holy Spirit's direction in their mm-hmm. heart. There's just mm-hmm. some inner homing beacon of the spirit. that's like, you need to learn the Bible. You need to learn. You need preaching, teaching, study. You need to learn. But the farther down the spiritual journey you get, once you begin, it's not like you master the Bible. The Bible is complex. You can spend a lifetime in it. Mm-hmm. But once you you adopt the basic mental map and worldview of Jesus and his kingdom of God, and you begin to like kind of map your worldview onto that of Jesus, then the problem switches from knowing what the Bible teaches to living what the Bible teaches, mm-hmm. which is much more difficult. Yeah. It takes a lot longer can't be done by just reading books and sitting through classes and podcasting. So for example, uh, some of the major problems that I'm facing right now at my current stage in the spiritual journey would be the way that unkind, subtle little sarcastic digs toward my wife leak out of me in a spirit of contempt or arrogance when I'm exhausted and annoyed with her and she's lovely Mm -hmm. or the way that my anxiety over decisions that my 18 year old son may make will cause me to be controlling with him or suspicious or shame him in order to try to keep him on the straight and narrow. Mm -hmm. Um, Or it is my propensity toward negative rumination and worry about a couple of things in my life or uh, nursing bitterness over somebody that deeply hurt me recently and I'm struggling to forgive. These are the the problems I'm solving for as a disciple Mm -hmm. of Jesus. A line-by-line exegetical Bible study through the book of Romans Mm. is a great thing. It's probably not going to fix my unkind treatment of my wife or my controlling behavior of my son that's rooted in deep anxiety that is in my nervous system from a traumatic event I had when I was a three-month-old baby. Like, And that's not a disparaging comment about exegetical study of Romans. It's Mm -hmm. huge. It's just to say, still a good thing. But in reading scripture, I spend, you know, not a, I try to let never a day go by 365 days a year where I'm not immersing myself in scripture. But now it's a guide to prayer more Mm. is, you know, and there are, there are times I have to study things down and really research and what is scripture teaching on this complex issue. But mostly scripture now for me is a way to renew my mind 
try to build new neural pathways that point me toward Jesus' vision of human flourishing and use it as a doorway to commune with God. Because the issues I'm solving for now can only be healed through relational contexts, contemplative prayer, suffering, stripping of my attachments, confession. It's this embodied stage that I'm at. So mm. that is a very long way of saying to go through the wall, we need to go beyond the kind of enlightenment information transfer model of discipleship to a more first century Hebrew, New Testament, body-based, relational model of discipleship. Your entire life you've been told to save, but has anyone helped you figure out how to spend? With Fidelity Income Planning, get help creating a personalized plan for cash flow, even when you're not working. One that includes your 401k and all your other accounts. Make informed decisions that best fit your life ahead, whether one-on-one or through our planning tools. Learn more at fidelity.com slash income planning. Advisory services provided by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC for a fee. Brokerage services by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. You know, it makes me think that um, we see people fall greatly, unfortunately, a lot. And it makes me wonder if we would look at whoever it was, whether it's someone, you know, in a personal relationship or someone that you follow on Instagram or a famous preacher or whatever. And we would see a lot of head knowledge because we yes. see them and they talk about it and they, and they quote scripture and they teach and all the things, but it's what you're talking about right here, that there's not that embodied practice of being in the presence of God. And it makes me think that we live in a in a world where as much as we said earlier at the beginning of the conversation that it could be like, quote unquote, easy to be the, what we call a Christian in America. I think it would also be easy to know a lot about God and not spend any time in the presence of God. And I think that's what you're saying is you don't get over that wall without being in the presence of God. Am I following you? Absolutely. In fact, it's even scarier. It would be easy to be on staff at a church and not spend time at some level in the presence of God. You know, a mentor of mine um, has this great analogy. He said, I'm not a golfer. Are you a golfer, Jamie? No, 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 no. No, I'm not a golfer, but I I, I get the analogy. It still works for me. He's a golfer. He said, discipleship is kind of like golf. It's like the easy part is getting a picture in your mind's eye of what your swing should look like, Mm -hmm. how you should play the game. You can watch golf on TV, you can watch YouTube videos and document like you can, you know, you can hire somebody to show you. The hard part is then practicing playing golf and getting the vision in your mind into the muscle memory of your body. So when you stand up at the tee and you swing, what comes out of your body is just naturally the right thing because of thousands upon thousands of hours of practice. And that's kind of what discipleship is. So the easy part of discipleship is learning what Jesus Mm. is saying in the Sermon on the Mount through Bible study and good teaching and preaching. The lifelong journey is, all right, now I have it in my mind. How do I get it? You know, evangelicals Mm. like to say the the longest 12 inches is 12 inches from your head to your heart. No, it's not. The longest 12 inches is from your heart to your central nervous system Mm. to getting it through your entire body where... We just naturally um, respond the way that Jesus would respond to the various situations of our life the way that he would. Mm, So good. You guys, this book, Practicing the Way, Be With Jesus, Become Like Him, Do As He Did. I had so many questions I want to talk to you about, you know, rule of life, the strategies and all these things. But I do want to get to one question because this is also our book club read for December. And Mackenzie asked a question. I think it goes along with what we were just talking about of getting things from our heart um, into practicing them. And she said this, she said, she just wrote a paper on Isaiah 58 
good for you, Mackenzie. I'm writing a paper now too, not on Isaiah 58, but I just read a paper on Isaiah 58 and the topic of true fasting. It's in quotes, so I don't know what that means, but the topic of true fasting. So I was thinking a lot about the practice in the way course on fasting. Something that comes up a lot in conversations for me is head to heart faith, moving from head knowledge to heart knowledge. Mm, Would love to hear a little around how the practices can facilitate a deeper relationship with God and how they can also... I'm going to correct her here because I think she maybe messed something up of how they can also, um, I'm assuming that the practices could encourage legalism depending on the role the practices take in your life. So when you notice a practice like fasting, taking on an idle role, legalism, what do you do? And she said, she knows it's a nuanced conversation. So do what you can with it, John Mark. Mm. Well, I mean, yes, I think there's more going on in the practices than just this, but one of the things that is happening with the practices is you are habituating the teachings of Jesus and vision of Jesus into the muscle memory of your body. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're playing golf, you're getting the Sermon on the Mount into your body through practices. And in fact, the reason, um, there's a few reasons we call them practices rather than spiritual disciplines, nothing wrong Mm -hmm. with spiritual disciplines. Um, we call them practices because Jesus used the language of practice in the Sermon on the Mount, beginning and the end. But we also use it because spiritual, the way people uh, use the word spiritual today is different than what it means in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. So today, by spiritual, people often mean like esoteric or immaterial or disembodied. That is not what it means in the New Testament. The New Testament means animated by the Spirit of God. So Paul writes about our, how our resurrection bodies will be spiritual bodies. And he doesn't mean they'll be like invisible or immaterial Mm -hmm. or like they're from the movie Soul. He means they will be physical bodies that are Mm. powered by, animated by the spirit of God. And so um, the practices are are embodied disciplines as much as they are spiritual disciplines. I mean, silence is a Mm. physical state. Solitude is a physical state. Fasting in particular is one of the most embodied of all the practices. And it's one of the reasons that fasting is, which which most Christians don't know this, fasting was considered one of the central disciplines of the Christian way for almost the last 2,000 years. It was virtually assumed that if you were a serious Christian, you would fast twice a week, every Wednesday and Friday until sundown all the time. I've never heard that before. That was just assumed. John Wesley refused to ordain anyone to the ministry who did not fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. Lent was originally like Ramadan, a full fast until sundown every night for 40 days. So one, you're like, why? This was just how Christians rolled mm. for 1,500 years. Why now the vast majority of modern Christians have never fasted once, much less mm-hmm. twice a week. That's, again, that's not to shame anybody it's to say this. It's because in the enlightenment model of information, learning, study the Bible, learn, grow that way, we cannot fathom a way of coming close to Jesus and being formed to be like Jesus, not through our mind, but through our stomach. Mm. Through It's one of the reasons solitude is so hard for people, because solitude teaches us not by addition, but by subtraction. Mm. So, you know, when we study the Bible or listen to a podcast or hear a sermon or have a conversation in community, they add truth into our life. It's beautiful. It's very, very, Mm -hmm. very good. But that's only one half of learning. Solitude and fasting teaches by taking away other voices, other inputs, food, creature comforts, distraction. Mm. And then you learn by what's left or not left, what's there in the empty space. And mm. let me tell you, you learn a lot in those moments. So b- people just cannot fathom a mode of discipleship that is stomach-based, not you know prefrontal cortex-based mm-hmm. in the modern world. So yes, the practices are embodied ways to say yes to the teachings of Jesus, to get them into our body, to let mm-hmm. him form us not just in our mind and our opinions about theology and doctrine, but literally in how we are as a whole person. We are not a mind. Mm -hmm. We are a Mm -hmm. human being who has a mind central to our being, but we're a whole person. Mm -hmm. And to the second piece of that question, I mean, yes, of course, the danger that for most young people is not, is not a danger. 
but for older generations was certainly a danger. And for certain personalities like myself or yours, Jamie, that are control oriented, Mm -hmm. very much, there are all sorts of dangers with practices and disciplines, one of which is legalism. You can forget Mm -hmm. the reason behind it and you could begin doing the discipline to do the discipline, to be a good person Mm -hmm. rather than to make God love you, rather than to make space for God to love you in your utter brokenness and wounding exactly Mm. as you are. And um, that's a subtle but drastic and lethal turn in your heart motivation. And I think Richard Foster says it best, there are dangers along the path of a disciplined life, but they are dangers along the right path. So there Mm. are dangers. Legalism Mm -hmm. is one. Um, Doing the right thing for the wrong reasons is another. Virtue signaling. But those are dangers along the path of discipleship, along mm. the path that we can and must walk to become like Jesus. You know, I just had this thought if you were talking, and there's this book that there's a lot of conversation about called The Body Keeps a Score. Great book. Love that book. Yes. And it's about, I mean, if you've read it, and, and basically the, the gist of it is like that our body remembers things in our life. You mentioned, I don't yes. know if you were making it up or if you choose an example about something that happened to you when you were three months old, like your body can remember that. I yep. just had a conversation with a friend who went back to a, a literal place that had been hard for her. And she's like, I could feel it in my body. Yep. And I've experienced that. Like I've experienced showing up and going, oh, my body is reacting to what it remembers this moment to be. And I don't know why I've never thought about it until just this moment, John Mark, that if our body, if I use that concept, that concept of our body keeps a score and it remembers trauma. It remembers hard. It remembers something that hurt. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, if our body's embodied enough to remember that, it's got to be the flip side too, right? Like our yes, body's no. got to be embodied to remember like good and joy and encounters and presence. Wouldn't that be right? I th- I mean, first off, you'd have to ask a neurobiologist to answer definitively. But yes, I think the body keeps the score of both wins and losses. That's what I'm and trying why to you, say. You walk into certain places and your body just feels yes. happier. We've, we've gone to the same beach house for before we moved for 17 years every summer for a two-week vacation. I swear, I walk in that uh-huh. room <laughs> and it is like I just went through an eight-hour day spa. Like my yeah. whole central nervous system just goes... And I'm normally like asleep on the couch 40 minutes later and I'm not a napper. My body remembers this is a place of rest. This is a safe, joyful place. Which we don't have, we don't have time to talk about this, but it reminds me of, I would ask you, do you feel that way when you go into the room that you told us about in the book where you sit cross-legged and you practice solitude and you practice silence and you pray? Does your body feel that way when you go in there? Yes, absolutely. Because it's a special place for me. I, you know, mm-hmm. what's coming to mind right now is my body, I really feel it in my body on Sabbath. Mm-hmm. So there's this weird thing that happens for me late every Friday afternoon, where I just begin to feel my nervous system start to shift gears. And it is unbelievable. It's like my body knows Sabbath is coming. Slow down ease up we're going into a new mode and it's like i feel i feel that weekly rhythm in my body Mm. and so feeling the rhythms of god in your body is the hallmark of a life that is slowly organized around apprenticeship to jesus I love it. John Mark Comer, this new book, Practicing the Way, Be With Jesus, Become Like Him, Do As He Did. Really great. Uh, Book club members, you've already been reading this. If you're listening to us um, on the happy hour, this release, I believe it was yesterday, January 16th. Actually, that would be my son's 20th birthday. So looky there. I can't believe I have a 20-year-old. Happy birthday. What's your son's name? Caden. I doubt he's listening. He's, he's definitely not listening. Son. He's not listening to any of the podcasts I do. But happy birthday, Kate. Happy birthday, Kate. And maybe one day he'll be like, what did my mom do when I was younger? Yes. Let me go. He's, my son's I'm great. I just He just has other things to do with his life. Like listen to hip hop, not listen to his dad on podcasts. 100%. I have a book coming out too in February. And I told my kids, I was like, hey, is anyone going to read it? And they're like, Mom, I haven't read any of your books. I'm like, it's okay. You're not my target audience. <laughs> I appreciate I keep it. waiting around for them to want to read one of my books. And I think I realized the other day, like, no, I'm just going to have to make them. You got, you need to read one of them, you know? Well, but. your kids are definitely going to grow up one day and be like, wow, my dad was really doing a lot of phenomenal work. So thank you for this yeah. work. And um, I just, <laughs> I, 
I really do really just think that you are a gift to the church in 2024 and the work that you're doing with Practicing the Way and your podcast and your books and just really appreciative for it. It's I'm, I learn a lot from it every time I sit under your teaching and this book is no different. So thanks for coming on the happy hour. You're very kind. Thank you. The Happy Hour is produced and hosted by myself, Jamie Ivey, with assistance from Nikki Ogden and Ashley Caldwell, and the show is edited by Jason Talley. Set your mind free with a free plan from Fidelity. Start by organizing your plan around what matters most to you. As you go, you'll be able to see your full financial picture, which covers spending, saving, debt, and goals in one simple view. Get started by visiting fidelity.com slash free plan. Expenses charged by your investments and other costs and fees associated with trading or transacting in your account apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSC SIPC. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human, Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy.